It's Thursday, October 26th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Pope Francis has accepted the resignation of Bishop Gregor's Kazakh. He resigned as head of a diocese in southwest Poland at issue an incident with a parish priest only identified as Father Thomas Z by newspaper Gazeta Wyborska. I will quote from their coverage. Several priests hired a male prostitute for one of the parish buildings. The event organized by the clergy was purely sexual in nature. Its participants took potency pills, says a person who knows the background of the case. According to Verbotska information, the party got out of control and the male prostitute lost consciousness. Then one of the party participants called an ambulance. However, when the rescuers arrived, they did not want to let him in. Medics had to call the police. Sex worker attempting to keep it up goes down. And as a result, so do the careers of Thomas Z and Bishop Kazak. By the way, the prostitute, that's the translation from sex worker from Polish to English. So I'm just saying they called him a prostitute. Was fine. He was fine. It turns out the priest's career was not. The priest fought back in the media, admonishing the newspaper and telling them to look up what the proper definition of sex orgy was. So I did. In Polish, it is a... Orgia sexualna. Yes, and it in fact means the same thing as it does in English. Several people at a party with a sex worker taking Viagra. The AP reports that also fits in with the diocese definition, finding, quote, Father Tomas committed, quote, a very serious violation of moral norms, as well as his obligations as a priest. It cited an incident at the priest's apartment involving him and at least two other lay people. And as we've long known, it is the priest's obligation to do more than just lay people. Bishop Kazak initiated an in-house canonical trial, which could result in Thomas Z's defrocking, an example of the punishment not only fitting the crime, but describing literal elements of the crime. Those results, by the way, the canonical trial, have not been announced, but Father Tomas has been removed from the parish, whose name is the Blessed Virgin Mary of the Angels. Mary had no comment, but was said to be looking up definitions in a Polish to Aramaic dictionary. On the show today, I spiel about the great economic news all around us that everyone seems to hate. But first, for every 100,000 people who live in, say, the country of Portugal, 111 of them will be incarcerated over the course of the year. Yet in Pennsylvania, that number is 659, and in Louisiana, it's over 1,000. Up next, I am joined by Stephen Bright, a lawyer renowned for defending people facing the death penalty and advocating overall for a more fair system of justice. He is out with a new book, The Fear of Too Much Justice, Race, Poverty, and the Persistence of Inequality in the Criminal Courts. Stephen Bright is up next. Stephen Bright is the longtime director of the Southern Center for Human Rights. He's pleaded and won multiple cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. He teaches law at Yale and Georgetown universities, and he is the author of The Fear of Too Much Justice, Race, Poverty, and the Persistence of Inequality in the Criminal Courts. Welcome to The Gist, Professor Bright. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be here. 
I love the phrase, the fear of too much justice. Does it, is it your own creation or does it arise from case law? No, it comes from a case. And uh, my co-author, James Kwok, and I decided on it because it seems to decide, to explain so much of what we talk about in the book. In 1987, uh, there was a case before the Supreme Court which showed the racial disparities in the infliction of the death penalty in Georgia. More likely to get the death penalty in a case where the victim is white, more likely when the defendant is black. And if you have that combination, which that case had of a uh, white victim and a black defendant, much more chance of getting the death penalty. And there was some thought that the Supreme Court would say, no, you can't do that. You cannot have a punishment which is meted out based on the race of the defendant and race of the victim. It was a five to four, very close uh, decision. But Justice Powell, for the majority, said, well, if we dealt with race discrimination with regard to the death penalty, uh, we would have to deal with it with regard to all the other criminal punishments mm -hmm. that there were. And Justice Brennan, in his dissent, said that sounds like the fear of too much justice. Yeah. And I think uh, Powell had said that before in some other cases, uh, but I think it explains a lot. I think one reason, just as an example, we don't have better public defenders, we don't fund public defenders enough, the fear that more people will be acquitted, cases will take too long, uh, there'll they'll really be too much justice. Yeah. So that answer alone, I could base the whole interview off statements you made in that answer. One is it was a death penalty case and death is different. The courts have always held. And so often the death penalty has served as a proxy for the justice system as a whole. But as you know, uh, this year so far, there have been 18 executions in the United States. Last year, there were 18 total executions in the United States. The number of executions has gone down precipitously. There have been over 1,500 since the 1970s when the courts began allowing them again. And so therefore, we could look at that number and say, oh, there is now much greater justice in the system. But I'm not so sure, and I don't think you're so sure, the death penalty is definitely something to to discuss and argue about, but maybe it's serving less as the proxy of the of overall justice in the system because as the death penalty becomes more rare, injustice overall doesn't seem to be becoming more rare. Oh, no, certainly not in the criminal courts. There's no question, as you said, the number of death sentences, one of the most important things to me is the number of people being sentenced to death. Back in the 1980s and 1990s, somewhere 290 to 315 people were being sentenced to death every year. Now it's 40. Uh, so it's a huge decline uh, in the number of people being sentenced to death. But on the other hand, we have a lot of people being sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Uh, we have debtor prisons all over the country where people who can't pay fines and fees are being held in prison because or jails well, because they can't uh, afford to, to pay the fines that have been uh, imposed upon them. Uh, there's all sort of injustice um, in the system. It's dealing with so many people, a huge volume. Uh, and unfortunately, there's a, there's a lot of problems. All right. One stat in the book. In 2016, more than 12,000 people were serving life without parole for crimes in which no one had been killed, often something as simple as serial sale and possession of drugs. But my question with the death penalty is, if I told you when you were doing your job in the 
80s, that this is going to be the picture of the death penalty, wouldn't you have said, oh, well, I don't know, I'm not going to say wouldn't, that presumes, but would you have said, oh, that must mean there's a correlative greater awareness of the overall state of injustice and a greater all effort to address it? Well, I think what happened with the death penalty is everybody just got worn out. Yeah. I mean, the death penalty cases take a huge amount of time for prosecutors, for defense lawyers, for everybody, for the court system. Uh, It just couldn't sustain it. Uh, And also very much the death penalty was driven by particular prosecutors. Most places never have a death case. It's just that in a few places like Houston, back at that time, uh, the prosecutor was a very gung-ho pro-death penalty, sought at every opportunity, was sentencing 11 or 12 people to death every year just in Houston, uh, Harris County. Yeah. Uh, the judges were appointing terrible lawyers, so those cases were very easy uh, for the prosecutor to get the death penalty. Uh, but most places were not doing that, and as time has gone by, uh, less and less we've seen uh, prosecutors pursuing the death penalty. Uh, of course, one reason is they often plea bargain cases by threatening to get the death penalty unless the defendant agrees to Uh, take life without parole or some other prison sentence. Right. And you talk about many instances where a prosecutor will ask for the death penalty as a tactic, as a bargaining chip. And we all know that happens. But you say, take a step back. What are prosecutors? They are servants of the state. They're supposed to be adjudicators of justice. It can't logically be the case that a prosecutor thinks someone deserves to die unless they cooperate. And then that person doesn't deserve to die. Well, and we give the uh, example of a woman who was facing the death penalty. She and her boyfriend had uh, killed her husband, one of these tragic lover triangle kind of things that happens every now and then. The prosecutor offered both her and the boyfriend plead guilty and testify against the other and give you life in prison. Uh, He accepted, testified against her. Uh, She was only disagreeing about when she'd be eligible for parole, which she might have never gotten. Uh, She goes to trial uh, and gets the death penalty. Uh, and the prosecutor argues, you know, this is a crime that's only punishable by the death penalty. It's so terrible. Well, he had already agreed to give her a life in prison, so he knew that wasn't true. Right. Uh, the reason she ended up getting the death penalty and uh, ended up being executed was because she didn't take the plea. Do you think, what do you think of efforts to challenge death penalty cases based on the means of execution, that this or that drug cocktail is less Uh, successful than other drug cocktails? Well, every time we've come up with a new system to execute people, it's supposed to be the great uh, end-all and be-all. When uh, electrocution came along, they said, hanging was barbaric, we're going to electrocute people. Yeah. Uh, And then a lot of electrocutions were botched and people caught on fire and they didn't die and all that. Uh, So then lethal injections, can we just like going to the hospital and having an operation? have been more botched lethal injections than, than any kind of uh, procedure. And so now we have Alabama getting ready to execute somebody using nitrogen to uh, deprive them of oxygen to kill them that way. So uh, we're still experimenting with all these different ways of executing people. And uh, it turns out there's really no good way to kill another person. At least there doesn't seem to be. Yeah, uh, it does seem to me, though, morally or as a philosophical question, that does seem to presuppose that if there were such a way that we could science our way out of this uh, particular conundrum, uh, 
I mean, and I understand as a uh, defense lawyer, if you can reach for, oh, this protocol has proven bad in the past, you have to serve your client by arguing against it. But like I said, is the real long-term effort to say that, oh, the reason the death penalty should be banned is that you can't kill anyone humanely versus the death penalty is inhumane? Oh, no. I think what the lethal injection and, and the effort is, is on the part of the states to try to make death more uh, palatable, palatable and acceptable right, to right. people. I yeah. think, you know, if it, you know, one probably uh, one way to execute people is a firing squad, but I think a lot of people, all the blood and uh, violence of the firing squad, people don't really want to confront that that's what we're doing when we, when we execute someone. So bigger, even though much of your career is, uh, was made on death penalty cases, the biggest emphasis of the book is the corrosive effect of plea bargains. And the statistic is 97% of federal cases are plea bargained and 94% of state cases. What would be the quote unquote ideal number? Well, I don't know if there'd be an ideal number, but one of the things that we know drives this number is the fact that there's such, like the example I just gave of the woman that got executed because she didn't accept the plea offer, uh, the incredible difference in bargaining power uh, and power between prosecutors and defense lawyers. Very often, uh, that example is one. Another is a person, you know, you can plead guilty, uh, serve two years or go to trial and get 20 years. Yeah. Uh, most people just can't risk it, even if they're innocent. Uh, the low-level crimes, a lot of people plead guilty to get out of jail. Uh, you're arrested, you come to court. If you plead guilty today, we'll let you go home. If you don't plead guilty and come back in two or three months, but you have to stay in jail during that time, and then you can come back and have a trial. Uh, so people plead guilty uh, in order to get out of jail. Of course, what they're not told is they're going to be put on probation with a lot of conditions they probably can't meet, and they're probably going to be fined a fine they can't pay, uh, so they may end up uh, back in jail anyway. Uh, if you compare, so it is true that we couldn't have every case go to trial. We almost definitely couldn't have most cases going to trial. So it's very hard to have an ideal number. But compare it to other countries with more functional criminal justice systems. What percentage of their cases go to trial? How much is the United States an outlier? Well, with regard to what you just said, uh, you know, cases settle, civil cases settle, and criminal cases settle. Yeah. Sometimes there's uh, pretty easy to tell what the outcome of the case is going to be if it goes to trial. And so there's some negotiation and every side, everybody gets something out of it. Uh, a lot of the other uh, countries have uh, more of an inquisitional system where the judges are more investigators than uh, triers in an adversary system like we have. Uh, so it's a different approach uh, also, we have elected prosecutors and elected judges, uh, which is very different than everywhere else in the world, uh, where you have more of a civil service type uh, people in, in the judiciary and in prosecution. It seems much worse. I mean, I've talked to Dershowitz and he says the the biggest reform we could do is just not elect prosecutors. That's just an inherent recipe for injustice. Do you agree? I do. And it's usually been a, a down ballot uh, office that nobody's paid any attention to. Uh, and somebody gets in there and stays in for 25 or 30 years. Uh, now we are having some differences. Now we are having uh, some progressive people being elected as prosecutors. And they've really shown just how much discretion prosecutors have. Because yeah. someone like Larry Krasner gets elected in Philadelphia, a jurisdiction which had sentenced a lot of people to death, and says on day one, I'm not seeking the death penalty. 
Uh, George Gascon gets elected in Los Angeles, where a number of people have been sentenced to death in his predecessor's term in office. And he says on day one, I'm not seeking the death penalty. Um, you know, just the prosecutor decides right there with regard to a you know major policy issue. And then they decide other things like uh, pursuing low level crimes, uh, money bail, things like that. Yeah, I agree that if we are going to have a system with elections, it's good to actually have a continuum of uh choices for voters. And so it used to only be the case that the only valence was how tough and how much tougher you are on crime than the next guy. So now, and almost always a guy, so now there's the uh, inclusion of at least in some localities, some choice for a progressive prosecutor. But I don't even think that's ideal. I think if you get elected as, quote unquote, a progressive prosecutor, you may be committing yourself to, you know, promising the voters that you'll have prejudged some of these crimes. Uh, Krasner has definitely done some good things in Philadelphia, but I was looking at his record with prosecuting police, and that's part of what he promised. And so he has brought more charges against police, but they haven't always stuck. Now, that might not be a criticism of Krasner, but if you look at some specific recent cases, I don't know, there's a plausible element that he has overcharged police. And again, I think that probably comes back to the fact that we elect prosecutors. If we just had a civil servant who whose job it was to best identify the law, they wouldn't feel compelled to either be progressive or tough on crime. They'd just be compelled to do the job as best they could. Well, and of course, what it means for people accused of crimes is it's the luck of the draw. Uh, yeah, you right, that's landed, right. You land in one jurisdiction and it's going to be treated one way and you land in another jurisdiction. It's going to be uh, treated completely different. I think one of the things my students have the hardest time understanding is that in a state, every prosecutor in the state system pursues their own policies with no no effort to be consistent from one place to another. So what's a death penalty case in Houston won't be in Dallas or what's in Dallas won't be in uh, Fort Worth or, or Philadelphia and, and Pittsburgh. Uh, I would say this about Krasner. He's had a, and many of these prosecutors have had uh, conviction integrity units. Uh, and I think Krasner's had something like 32 people who've been exonerated. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's a fairly impressive uh, fact. Uh, and there's some others as well that have done, uh, have looked into cases and found out that there are people being wrongfully held in prison. So uh, about uh, plea bargains, um, do you, who do you think that system works well for? If you ask uh, prosecutors or if you ask DAs, they will. And I think they're often being honest, say, we don't like it either. We wish everyone had more resources. It's just that we're under-resourced. Do you believe them or do you think that they are advantaged by the fact that 94% of state cases are plea bargained? Well, I don't see how there could be much argument that they're not advantaged by it because it means that instead of trying cases, they're dealing cases out. And, and notice that what, what this does, all the powers with the prosecutor, not the judge. A lot of people think sentencing in this country is done by judges. It's not. It's done by prosecutors because what the plea offer is, what the mandatory minimum is, what all of the sentencing factors are, uh, is pretty much decided by prosecutors uh, in their charging decision to begin with. A uh, prosecutor can charge something as uh, aggravated assault. Another prosecutor can charge it as just straight up simple assault. Huge difference in what the punishments will be uh, based on just what the charge is. Uh, and then if there's a plea offer to a lesser crime, uh, that will dictate what the punishment is going to be. 
uh, if there are guidelines or mandatory minimums or other things like that, uh, those can all be manipulated by the prosecutor uh, to pretty much dictate what the sentence is going to be. And, and very many places, the, the agreement is, the prosecution, the plea bargain is, uh, you're going to get 10 years. You're yeah. pleading guilty, uh, dismiss these charges, you'll plead guilty to these, you'll get 10 years. So the judge just basically takes the plea. So there are many cases where an innocent person will take a plea for fearing what could be decided by a jury or people will be intimidated to take a, a plea that winds up giving them more time than they would have gotten otherwise. But on the whole, do people who play, do defendants who take pleas serve less time than similarly situated defendants who go to trial? Oh, sure. And what that means, the converse of that is that the people serving the longest time are not there because they committed the worst crimes or they have the worst records. It's because they went to trial. Those are the people who are serving you know, far longer than the people who take the plea. Uh, and of course, in some cases, like the woman I talked about earlier, they're, they're executed because they didn't take the plea. Let's do this thought experiment. What if major Supreme Court cases that worried about the threat of too much justice were decided otherwise? What if McCleskey was 5-4 in the other direction or Strickland versus Washington or Wainwright versus Sykes? You know all the cases. I don't. But, you know, some were close and often, hey, there have been cases where uh, I guess the defendant's bar would be pleased by the adjudication. But if all those even close cases were decided the other way, do you think it would have been a massive change in what you're talking about or more of a bit of progress, but there are just uh, these fundamental injustices baked into the system? Well, the court didn't have all the power. And unfortunately, one of the things like the right to a lawyer, the Supreme Court said in 1963 that everybody accused of a crime, uh, anybody that's going to face a loss of liberty has a right to a lawyer. Unfortunately, it didn't say how to pay for it or how to structure a system of providing lawyers. That's all left to the legislatures or uh, local governments. And so uh, what we have, unfortunately, is people have a right to a lawyer. That right is pretty clear. Uh, but the kind of lawyer people get, depending upon where in the country you are, uh, can be a very capable a committed public defender, or it can be a lawyer who spends five minutes with a person and convinces them to plead guilty. Uh, and doesn't give them any time, doesn't investigate their case, doesn't even conduct an interview uh, with the person. Uh, so that can't be helped by the court unless the courts are going to say, if you are going to have this system, you have to provide people with lawyers who have the time, the resources, and, and so forth to go forward. And some courts ha have done that. Uh, but what we try to point out in the book is that there are a number of places that uh, we see courts doing far better than the Supreme Court. Uh, we look at the state of Washington, the Supreme Court there uh, declared the death penalty unconstitutional under the Washington Constitution because of race discrimination that was going on. Uh, we see some decisions of that court trying to deal with the race issues, which are all the way through our book, uh, and trying uh, much harder than we see the U.S. Supreme Court uh, to end race discrimination in jury selection and in prosecutorial closing arguments and things like that. 
So other than taking guidance from states like Washington, which seem to be uh, have, coming up with uh, decent, necessary solutions to some of the problems you write about, where else? And, and then, you know, the implication of some of our discussion is let's not elect prosecutors, but I that seems a long way off from happening. What right. else uh, should we societally look to as possible fixes, solutions, areas to pursue progress? Well, I think you can look at states. I think nothing is more critical uh, for the fairness of criminal cases than that poor people accused of crimes be capably represented by lawyers who know what they're doing, uh, who have the time and the resources to represent them. And you can look at New Jersey, you can Colorado, you can look at the public defender in the District of Columbia, the federal public defenders, some of the public defenders in New York, uh, and you can see how that can be done and how it really uh, ensures uh, the integrity of the process and that people are uh, properly uh, convicted. I mean, one of the things we're so worried about is the fact that we're not getting the most basic things straight. The system is convicting innocent people, and that means the actual perpetrators are still at large. Uh, but there are a lot of other problems beyond that, uh, including how often the sentences are very excessive uh, for people, who, even those who, who are convicted. Uh, but where you have uh, capable uh, defense lawyers for the people who are accused, uh, you can prevent a lot of the injustices that we describe in, in the book. Stephen Bright teaches law at Yale and Georgetown Universities, director of the Southern Center for Human Rights. His book is called The Fear of Too Much Justice, Race, Poverty, and the Persistence of Inequality in the Criminal Courts. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And Stephen Bright, hey, real force in criminal court reform probably makes you want to hear more. If you do, I ask you to join us in a conversation for PESCA Plus members. We get into the use of jailhouse snitches and the problems with jury selection. Members of PESCA Plus get longer cuts of interviews. We're also having a trivia night among all of us or as many who want to attend uh, on Monday. Trivia night on Monday. All the information will be going out to the PESCA Plus people this weekend. If you just want to listen to the show without ads, that's available too. It's all at subscribe.mikepesca.com to sign up. And now the spiel. The economic numbers are in and the economy is going gangbusters. 4.9% growth. That's some Clinton-era numbers. Unemployment near record lows. Wage increases. Inflation going in a great direction was 7.7% a year ago, 3.7% now. Two summers ago, gas was almost $5 a gallon nationally. In places like California, you'd see gas at $7, $8. One year ago, gas was over $4 a gallon. Now it's down to $3.50 nationally and less in many states. As this montage of reporters forced to wake up at 4 a.m. to do a live hit at a gas station for the morning news tells you. The average for a gallon of regular in Florida is 322. That's down 42 cents from a month ago. Over the last month, the average price of gas here in North Carolina has dropped 24 cents. That means if you have a 20 gallon tank, you're saving about $5 every time you fill up. The current average here in Phoenix this morning is 425 a gallon. A week ago, it was 443. A month ago, it was 494. The reaction of all this economic good news, I'd say of the brightest economic picture in 15 years, is that Americans are pissed off. They hate the economy. 
or at least when you ask them about the economy, they say they hate it. I believe them. When you don't ask them, but just see how they interact with the economy in the real world, it's a slightly different story. How they act is the exact thing that's driving many of these good economic numbers. Reuters has this report. Robust consumer spending fueled growth amid a resilient labor market, with businesses restocking warehouses and store shelves to meet strong demand. Consumer spending accounts for more than two-thirds of U.S. economic activity. Economics calls this actually spending versus saying what you think. They call this a revealed preference, doing the thing, not opining about the thing. But maybe we should immediately discount what economists call anything. They're the ones telling us the economy is good and yet it doesn't feel good. The poor economy is the country's number one concern. There's a Gallup index, I mean, Gallup polls in many ways, and the economy is seen as poor by, you know, a three-to-one ratio, but they have this overall index on the economies they've been registering since 1967, and we have the worst readings since 2008, when the Great Recession imploded upon us. And it's weird. This economy, these macro conditions we're living in, this actually is why you, if you're a government decision maker, make the decisions that you make. This is why you do all the things you do as a government. You raise rates to tame inflation, and they say it wouldn't work, but it did. And you spend enough to help people, but stop when the spending is overstimulative. And we were not perfect at that. I think we overstimulated a little too long, and that was some of the inflation. But, you know, we eventually got it right, or more right than every other country in the world, I think. You make some sacrifices to have longer-term growth. We're living in that longer-term growth. Check, 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 and check. And you have to get a little bit lucky. We are actually getting a little lucky as well. And it all works. And then everyone hates it. Why? Well, inflation does seem to have an outsized role in people's perceptions. Not that it's not important. Not that it immiserates people and makes their lives harder and more depressing. But it still is defined by most people as the economy. 54% said the most important economic measure was inflation. Now, last year, when inflation was bad, but not extremely bad or as bad as it had been a couple months prior, people were pointing to, you know, experts were pointing to gas prices because gas prices was the most bad among the elements of the consumer price index. Other macroeconomic factors were doing pretty well, but gas, that was the big exception, and therefore that became the big explanation of the lag in perception and what the macroeconomic indicators were saying. Tom Smith of Emory's Gorzetta Business School explained it to the Atlanta Fox affiliate. So it wouldn't be surprising for us to look at one event and say, oh my gosh, the sky is falling, where you say, This isn't really a really huge part of your overall spending, but because it's such an easy, it's such an easy thing to track, like gasoline prices are such an easy metric to track that you track those and then that becomes your barometer for everything. Gas isn't just a component or an important component of inflation. It's a very present, you could say omnipresent component. Here's my old friend Jacob Goldstein invited on CBS this morning for a ride along as he and the reporter pump some gas. I mean, gas is incredibly expensive. It's extraordinary. It's gone up so much so fast. And you know, one of the things about gas is you just see it, right? Like it's literally in your face. You know, there's a great big sign and then you start pumping it and you watch the numbers go up. So it's like extra painful. 
But now, gas is down a lot. I don't have to play you more local news reporters standing outside gas stations, do I? Good. Let them sleep in to 4.15. But I entertain the idea that gas prices in particular have a special hold on the psyche, a hold that short circuits the relationship between perception and reality. I kind of bought into that. But now... We have changed the variables. If that was the experiment and if that was the thesis, you'd say, well, to test that thesis, you'd need a period with really good economic growth where gas wasn't bad, but gas prices were going down and people still hated the economy. That's exactly the period that we're in. And people still hate the economy. I don't know. Maybe it's not gas prices. Maybe it's cereal prices. There was a Wall Street Journal article headlined, $8.99 cereal could rock the globe. The article by William Galston points to that item, cereal, emblematic of the sort of shockingly high grocery item that we just can't quite get over, no matter what else is happening in the world or our world. The piece documents that it is inflation, in fact, that people focus on, that's how they define the economy, and argues, Galston's a political writer, that Joe Biden might find himself cinnamon toast crunched when it comes to re-election. The subhead is high prices in U.S. stores will play an outsized role in 2024's presidential election. All right, well, I thought it was gas. Anyway, let's move on to cereal as the idea. You could also point to the price of cars or, I don't know, Taylor Swift tickets. Galston says of what he considers Biden's overall capable stewardship of the economy, quote, the problem exemplified by the cost of a box of cereal could end his presidency unless he addresses high prices head on. FDR had the New Deal. LBJ had the Great Society. The Biden presidency will hinge on double coupon days. Joe Biden, he desperately needs to tap into the strategic Crunchberry Reserve. In a meeting of military figures and European royalty, Joe Biden, Captain Crunch, and Count Chocula all reiterated their stances against the pro-life position, though they did offer some daylight on the pro-cinnamon life question. I think it's not gas. It's not cereal. It's not hidden fees. It's not the higher cost of borrowing. It's not perceived sticker shock. It's a little bit of all that. Economic news is definitely filtered through a partisan lens that has been amply documented. So good economy, Democratic president, Republicans just won't give them credit, but it's true the other way around. But mostly I think what's going on is a question of the economy becoming inextricably bound with the question of anxiety, anxiety overall. And it makes sense. Work is such a dominant feature of our lives. Money is so bound up with our definition of happiness and the reality of happiness. I think these questions of economics essentially become proxies for how you doing? How you really do? You doing okay? And we're not doing that okay. I could be wrong. Maybe the economy will do so well for so long for so many that it becomes essentially unignorable. Or maybe, doubtfully, but maybe Joe Biden will find a way to communicate that he's the answer to anxiety. If the answer is serial related in any way, it's a good thing that Biden does have some experience in liaising with members of the serial community. Corn Pop was a bad dude. But I doubt that a serial offensive is the way forward, just as I doubt that Fruit Loops in every bowl are the new chicken in every pot. Anxiety, economic and otherwise, gets coded as an economic problem, and it probably is just the new reality. And maybe no president will ever again get credit for a good economy. They can just hope to be less punished than they'd otherwise be for a demonstrably bad one. 
And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Corey Wara. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca doesn't get enough credit for all that she does. You know, she's on the phone giving the last four digits of her account number. Her mother's maiden name. My mother's maiden name. Just hours and hours a day. And I'd like to give her credit for that. We all should. Without that, this show would not be possible. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dupro, and thanks for listening. Frankenberry's got strawberry-flavored marshmallows. Count Chocula's got chocolate marshmallows. But I've got blueberry-flavored marshmallows. Frankenberry. Count Chocula. <laughs> and blueberry. <laughs> uh, uh.